What if you could turn your love of music into a career? What if working with your favorite artists and bands was just a project away? That's what we're going to be looking at in this episode of the New Music Industry Podcast. Passing the mic with professional marketing consultant, Michael Brandbold. How are you today, Michael? Excellent. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. This has become somewhat of an obligatory question lately, but how have you been holding up during the pandemic? Um, you know, every day is Monday. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but it, it hasn't been as big a deal for me because I've been working from home for 10 years now as it is. So, and, and my business is, is very much virtual based. So I've always been internet based. I rarely have seen clients. Now it's, it's definitely impacted some clients, especially clients that are reliant on touring. Um, But at the same time, I probably have never had more clients coming in wanting guidance for releasing music than I've Hmm. seen over the last six to eight months. You know, that is what I keep hearing from my friends in the music industry as well as and some guests that I've had on the show. So that's great to hear. And it definitely gives me the sense, too, that there's still much to be done and much that can be done even in these strange times. To me, that's kind of the best word for it. But so, you know, going through your story after graduating university, you found yourself working in the music industry. First, you were the director of marketing at DKP Productions. Then you were the national radio promotions manager at Red Light Records. But things started changing for you when you built a fan site for Kiss. And I'm familiar with the story, but I would love for you to touch on that progression because sure. it's really it's really great. I mean, you know, I'll try and keep it to the the five minute story here. We're, we're, <laughs> yeah. Let, let, let's go back to the dark ages of the internet. Literally, um, <laughs> you know, I I launched my very first website in 1995. Um, pretty much right about when the internet was opening up for the public to use. Yeah. Um, I, at that time, was managing an ad network for a home improvement store. And, you know, one of my jobs was to always keep up on new computer technology. And there was a thing always being talked about called this new language, HTML. HTML programming. People are going to have to learn this. And I'm like, okay, I, I probably should, for my own job security, check this out and learn what this is. Um, back in 95, though, there was literally not one single book course application. There was nothing in existence on how to build a website. Wow. Um, you know, I don't think Netscape didn't exist. Mozilla, which predated Netscape because it was developed at a university in Illinois, probably had just been released as version version one. That was it. Um, so what I did was, you, like everybody did back then, you go find a website, you look at the source code on that website, which you can still do mm-hmm. to this day. Yeah. Um, copy that source code, and I changed it. I would just open it up in a text editor and I would change it and learn what it is. And it turns out HTML, at least back then, was a very simple language to learn. Um, mm-hmm. If you understood basic programming, you could master HTML. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to build a website, let's build something that I love. If I'm going to do this on my own time, I've been a KISS fan since mid-70s. So I'm like, all right, let's build a KISS website just for the fun of it. Um, this was 95, 96 when it launched. Um, if ever, anybody knows some little bit of history, um, 96 is when they got the original band back together and put the makeup back on. And their, right. their tour at, in 96 was like the, the, the number one tour in the world. Um, so it was, and, and I had no idea that was going to be happening. It was just perfect timing. Um, so I built this KISS website as a fan so I could learn what HTML and websites were. All of a sudden, KISS is exploding. 
Uh, I have music business experience prior to this. I reached out to their management, Doc McGee, introduced myself, and they were quite open to helping me however they could. You know, they would send me information. They'd confirm or deny stuff for me. Um, They even went so far as to allow me to purchase two tickets from the band's hold for every show on that tour, which I turned around and allowed a fan to pay for so they could go to the show. In exchange, they had to write a review of the concert that they gave me to post on my website. So all of a sudden, I've got just inundated with reviews of the the Kiss reunion tour that's going on. And the website just started to explode and and just really Mm. take off. Timing, I was a fan. I knew what fans were liking. Um, It was, you know, it was the perfect storm, so to speak. Um, Fast forward to 1998, and I'm now working, um, managing a network at another another, uh, retailer. And I get a voicemail message from Gene Simmons saying, you know, (laughs) I've got a business proposition. Give me a call. Um, Mm. Oh, interesting. I wonder what this is about now. I'd had some previous um, connections with Gene through the convention tour they had done, and I'd emailed with him. So it wasn't an out-of-the-blue thing like, oh, my God. But it was still, like, interesting. What is this business proposition? Um, Call him back, and basically it's like, Mike, you know, we want to build the KISS website. Nobody, you know, again, we're 98 people. There wasn't a lot out there. My, My KISS fan site was the fifth website on the entire internet about KISS. Wow. That, you know, there were so few websites back in the mid-90s that, that you, if you were building something, you were right there at the cusp. But, I mean, here's a funny side story. I built it. I'm a mark, trained marketing person, so I'm like, all right, how do I promote my website? Oh, well, there's these two guys out of Stanford University that are hand building this directory of every new website that gets launched. So I email them. Mm-hmm. That was Yahoo, predating Yahoo. These were the two guys uh-huh. from Yahoo yeah. in their dorm rooms still handwriting this web directory. Um, I wish I had saved the email I had sent them, but you know, Google didn't exist. Amazon I don't think Amazon existed. It was um, there was a seed. No, Amazon did, but it was just books. There was a separate website out there that you could buy CDs online, which Amazon eventually purchased. But we're talking really dark ages of the Internet, a completely different world than what we live in right now. Um, yeah. But back to the call, Gene calls. I chat. I call him back. He's like, we're going to launch a website. And you are the best person to do it for us. Um, you know, I'm one of the only people on the Internet who's built a KISS website. I've got experience. I've been in connection with Gene and Doc McGee. It was just perfect. So he says, call our manager and work out the details, basically, um, which I did. And long story short, that was in August of 98. By October of 98, I had quit my full-time job. The company I was working for wasn't specifically KISS, but it was their merchandising company. Mm. It was a company called Sony Signatures at the time, which has been bought and sold so many times, but now it's Live Nation merchandise. Um, They're a company that's, you know, when you go to a concert, ever again, if we do, um, and you buy a tour T-shirt or a tour book or a hat, they're the company that makes this stuff for the bands. And there's a handful of companies that did it. This company in particular um, had the rights from KISS to do KISS merchandising. One of the things they licensed was the rights for somebody to build a KISS website. So in essence, KISS wasn't building their own website. Somebody else paid KISS for the rights to build a website for KISS. Hmm. And Gene basically said, well, you need a KISS fan to do this. We don't want just some design company that doesn't understand KISS and KISS fans to do it. You need a KISS fan. Hire Mike 
to do this. So the merchandising company hired me. Sole job at that time was to come in and build kissonline.com, which is the band's website. Um, So I built it from scratch, hand-coded it, um, and then my job was to fill it with content and keep it active. And that meant going to shows and taking photos at shows and videos at shows and interviewing the band. And again, keep in mind, this was all way before any sort of social media ever existed. Nothing existed social media. WordPress didn't exist. Blogs didn't exist. You had to hand code websites. Now, there were apps at that time that I was using. I think I was using something from Adobe called Go Live. Oh, um, yes. To build the KISS website, which, funny story, is back at a couple years after I'd been doing the KISS website, Adobe reached out to do a feature story on me and the website because at the time it was the largest website on the internet using Adobe Go Live. There was like, I can't remember, 30,000 site elements that I had into the Adobe Go Live app to manage and stuff like that. Um, Of course, we started to quickly migrate away from a hand-coded website to a PHP dynamically driven website, but that still had to be hand-coded. So I finally was able to bring in a web developer who was just a PHP coder, and we built a dynamic website probably around 2000 that has all of what you would expect from like a WordPress website. Like it's got an admin Mm. back end and you can go post news and then it automatically goes live and fans can create their own user accounts and they can leave comments and they can have a chat room and all of this stuff that we take for granted today was hand built, hand coded back then. There were just no standards, but it was, what I wanted to do was build a website that was a fan community because that's what, you know, the goal of your website is to get as many people to visit it every day and stay there on your website as long as possible. You don't want them to go away because as long as they stay there, you have more opportunity to basically sell them, whether it's selling them KISS t-shirts or KISS tour books or join our email list or whatever it is, but we want them staying in our website. So that meant a fan community where fans would come every single day and hang out because they knew there was a new story being, a news story being posted. There was a new review being posted. There was hundreds of photos from last night's concert being posted. Um, You know, that's what I was doing. It was quite the challenge back then because high-speed bandwidth didn't exist. Yeah. Um, All of this was being done basically over dial-up modems. Yes. And, you know, it wasn't a 14.4 modem at that point in time. It was probably a 56K modem. But still, it was a dial-up to an AOL connection and an upload. And, you know, those uploads could take hours. Hours. I mean, there was very little video (laughs) going on because you couldn't sit there for 12 hours to upload a 10-second video clip that literally was going to be the size of a postage stamp because that's all you could do. Um, YouTube didn't exist, so you had to, like, get your own we had to get a quick time web streaming server at the time to stream video but it only allowed two people at a time to stream video from the server (laughs) i mean (laughs) just just stuff where you sit back today and go really two people at a time on the internet can only stream video um you know it it just forced us to be creative and interesting and it was just all about building fan engagement now Once we got the KISS website up and running, the company I was working for quickly realized, let's get the rights to all sorts of other artists. Because they had the touring and merchandising rights for hundreds of artists. So before I knew it, I was building a website for Alan Jackson, the country star, Aaron Carter, Mm -hmm. a pop star, Britney Spears for her very first album. Um, we, we took over Madonna's website and rebuilt that. We launched a U2 website and fan club back then. 
Motley Crue, we were doing it for Ozzy Osbourne, Fleetwood Mac, Rod Stewart. I mean, the list goes on and on because we were, we were giving the artists a little extra money for their, in their contract for the rights, their online rights, which back then nobody was really realizing there was great value to. You know, a, an artist back then would be like, all right, I'm building a website but I don't want to spend the money on it. Oh, the record label will do it, but the record label doesn't really care if you don't have a new record coming out. So, you know, we're doing the tour. We'll give you a little extra money. Give us the rights to your website and your online store, and we built it. We ran it. We sold merchandise. We did everything but sell music because that was still the record label's job, and we didn't care about that. We were giving the artists new revenue streams that Hmm. didn't exist just a couple years earlier. Um, And we were absorbing the cost so they didn't have to pay somebody to do a website and manage it and deal with the headaches that go along with it. So, you know, it quickly exploded into me managing websites for all sorts of artists. And and that eventually grew into VIP ticketing. Um, Back in 2003 we launched VIP ticketing for KISS. Now, nobody was doing it prior to that. It wasn't, it wasn't even a business idea. Nobody thought about selling backstage access. Um, the story of how it came about is KISS's management called me and said, we're getting ready to announce the upcoming tour that KISS and Aerosmith are doing together. Do you want us to hold any tickets for the website? Now, anybody in the business knows that the bands hold the best seats. You know, they get the best seats to hold and use for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, of course, I don't know what I'm doing with them. But yes, I'd love it if you hold, you know, 25, 50 tickets per show for the website. And they were like, no problem. But you need to let us know by the end of the week what you want and what you're going to do because then we have to release them back to the promoter to sell to the general public which is you know that's typical that wasn't anything unheard of but i was like all right i got all these great tickets and but i mean great i mean first row second row tickets that's what the band has the ability to go out and just tell a promoter i'm taking the first two rows of tickets um i said well let me put together this package as a kiss fan i know fans have always wanted to meet the band but unless you're in the business or know somebody you don't get backstage to meet any band any band you know so it was a rarity to get backstage access i also know that fans would spend like on that reunion tour they were spending over 750 dollars a ticket with scalpers just to get a front row seat huh you know and that money isn't going into the band's pocket. Scalpers are making all the money off of that. And, you know, we know that bands have always hated scalpers because it's taken money out of their pockets. Um, So I basically pitched to management. I said, what if you guarantee the fan a front row seat, uh, a picture with the band, we'll give them an exclusive T-shirt, we'll give them an autographed tour book, we'll give them some guitar picks, and they can meet the band and get something else autographed. And management loved the idea. I had originally pitched it as meeting the band out of makeup because I just thought it was never going to be possible to meet Kiss in full makeup and costume backstage. And management Hmm. said, I want this done with the makeup on. I go, well, if you can guarantee that the band in costume and makeup will meet the fans instead of $500 a ticket, which I proposed, I go, I think we can do $1,000 a ticket. And they agreed to it. So quickly, we we basically set up our own ticketing system, which was nothing more than like selling t-shirts, but you were buying a ticket. And you bought one ticket for $1,000. It was, we couldn't tell you the exact seat location other than we guaranteed it was going to be in the first row. And here's all you got for it. And I felt confident about it because as a fan, I could add the value up and go, well, this is worth it. I was going to spend $750 mm-hmm. just to buy a front row ticket. Now I'm spending $1,000 and I get a front row ticket, but I also get to meet the band. 
and I get a photo with the band, that's priceless right there. And uh, we put the tickets on sale and was a 60-day tour, 25 VIP tickets per date, all sold out at $1,000 a ticket. Wow. And we were like, whoa, we just hit something new here. And almost immediately after that, every other artist out there was like, how do we do this? How do we do this? Because remember, this is yeah. uh, this is 2003. So album sales are pretty much heading straight to the bottom at that point in time. You know, Napster killed everything. You know, c- CDs and vinyl were no longer selling like they used to. So artists were looking drastically for other revenue streams. And all of a sudden, we presented this revenue stream that made a lot of money. But more importantly, if you work with artists, you realize you don't want to create more work for the artist. So this wasn't any more work. You were already at a show. You were putting this show on. You're already in the venue. You're already doing meet and greets for radio stations and record labels and everything else. All we're asking you to do is a 25-minute meet and greet with a few fans. That's it. And you're going to make a lot of money out of it. And, you know, as, as we all know, VIP ticketing programs just exploded and have become the norm and have become the revenue stream for so many artists that are out there these days. Yeah, thanks for fleshing that out. That's awesome. And I can recall just by way of comment, you know, building my first website, it was probably 97, 98. So there was an HTML4 book, I believe. And I also remember bugging Yahoo to get my website up there. And at the time, or as was, you know, the trend at the time, I just built an anti-musician website. It was not anti-musicians in general, the anti-Hansen. It was just kind of a trendy thing to do, and uh, uh, I guess it channeled my teen angst at the time, but that was kind of a fun thing that my listeners might not even know about. So, you know, not surprisingly, you put together an ebook called Kiss School of Marketing. Kiss is obviously a very successful band, and there's a great deal musicians can learn from what they did. What are some things you think musicians often miss about what a band like Kiss did well? You know, you know, the, the ebook was my takeaway from being a fan and then spending years working. In this case, I worked directly with Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Um, you know, many artists you work through managers or personal assistants, you never even have contact with the artist. Gene and Paul were always, always directly involved with everything related to their career. And mm-hmm. that in itself is probably the biggest lesson anybody can take is if you want control and want to know what's going on with your career and you don't want to get your, your you don't want to have money taken from you. You don't want to have, you, you don't want to become a behind the music story of how this band was rocketing to stardom and then woke up tomorrow dead broke. You've got to be involved with everything that goes on in your career. Now, does that mean you've got to do it hands-on? Of course not, but you need to know what's going on. You need to know who's doing it. You need to ask questions when you don't know what's going on because this is your career. And, you know, that's what Gene and Paul were always, and they still to this day, they're, they're very deeply involved in everything. They would look at designs and approve designs and copy. And, you know, they, they were intimately involved in everything. So that is probably the biggest lesson. But they mm-hmm. also knew the importance of their fan base. Their fan base, they live or die by a fan base. And we know now every band, especially because everything's on the Internet, you live or die by how big your fan base is. Because that fan base is what you survive off of. So... It's not so much saying whatever the fans want, you give them, but you have to listen to your fans. You can't yeah. be afraid to hear what they have to say. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge all artists have is to not accommodate every single fan request because you can't make every single fan happy. That's a, that's, that's a fact. 
you're going to make one fan happy, you're going to piss off another fan as you do. <laughs> so don't worry about that. Just do what you think is right and hope that the vast majority of your fans agree with it. Um, you know, another big lesson from KISS, which is probably obvious to so many people, is it's all about branding. You know, the yeah. brand is so important. You know, the, the, the e-book, whether you like KISS or not, has a lot of valuable lessons. You don't have to be a fan of their music, their shows, or anything, but there's valuable lessons in there. You know, you could probably take the KISS logo and maybe Gene Simmons' makeup, and you could, I venture to say, show that to just about anybody anywhere in the world, and they'll know what it is. Hmm. They may not have ever heard a song. They may have never seen a concert or a video or bought anything, but they'll recognize what it is. Just like, you know, you could do that with the Disney logo, with Coke, with Apple. That's pretty heavy branding when you've reached that level, that you have instant recognition just by seeing something. Um, but, you know, they always were, all, they always are, I shouldn't say were, because they're still around. Um, they're always about branding. It's kiss this and kiss that. And the makeup's got to be on there and the logo's got to be on there. You know, Gene Simmons, personally, when he does projects, he brands everything with his name. Gene Simmons Magazine, Gene Simmons Soda, Gene Simmons whatever. Um, It's all about that branding recognition because at the end of the day, that's what you want people to remember is your brand. Love it. Absolutely. And I think it can take a while for a musician to kind of wrap their head around the brand because – I think the the biggest assumption that it's fonts, colors, logos, which it is, but I think branding also just speaks to the purpose and the intention of the band. And that's obviously something that should be reflected in the music, not just the, not just the art. Exactly. And I think, I think to some extent you've got some fans who are not fans, but bands and musicians who feel branding is a, a dirty word. I mean, I'm about music. I'm not about the brand. I'm not about marketing. You know, I, I'm all about my music and my songs and everything else. And yeah, you've got to be. But in this day and age, I hate to say it, music alone isn't going to sell you. Hmm. Music alone doesn't make you successful. You've got to have great music. But I think we could all sit down and name one or two artists who have for lack of a better term, crappy music, but are getting a ton of attention. They got great branding and great marketing and great promotion. And we all scratch our heads going, how does that person get all over videos and YouTube and TikTok or wherever? And they can't, they don't play their own stuff. It's all computers. It's all whatever. And this guy who wrote everything, produced everything is a incredible musician, guitar player, whatever, nobody's hearing it. Well, it's because, you know, it's branding, it's marketing. And you can't be afraid of it in this day and age. If you don't have a strong brand, you don't have a career is what it kind of comes down to. So you've been hosting the Music Biz Weekly podcast since about 2011, it looks like. I might have that detail off, but... I'd be interested to know what the impact of podcasting has been, what you've learned from it, and if you have any tips for podcasters. Um, I love podcasting. You know, I've been on podcast panels at radio conventions and various other places. Um, The first thing I tell people is everybody's got a podcast in them. Mm. Don't every all you got to do is talk about what you love. And, yeah. and what most people do is they try and overthink and overplan a podcast. Oh, I've got to go out and get the newest equipment and the biggest mixing board and $500 microphone. And I've got a professional editing software. And, you know, I've got to get rid of all the ums and ahs when I talk about it. And I've got to prep <laughs> it out and script out what I'm going to say. And, you know, that, that comes from, you know, radio and television where that's what would happen in radio and TV. But I tell people, I'm like, screw all of that. All of that. You can do a podcast for nothing. There's software on Windows or Mac um, that's free 
that will allow you to record. I mean, at the end of the day, a podcast is nothing more than an audio interview. That's it. It's just an MP3 file. It's an interview. Hey, you got a Mac? Guess what you got? GarageBand for free. You Mm want to do video? Guess what you got? iMovie for free. You can do it all there for free. Do it as cheap as possible to start with until you've committed yourself to it. Then you can start going out and improving things and spending some more money. But you don't want to be six months from now going, well, Facebook Marketplace, I've got this $6,000 podcasting setup that I'm selling. I'll take 2500 bucks for it <laughs> because you just didn't have the desire to continue to do a podcast. So that's the first bit of advice is don't, don't go overboard. Um, the second bit of advice is it's all about the content mm-hmm. and less about the quality. Now, I'm not saying quality doesn't matter, but just like websites, people do not come back to a podcast week after week after week because you've got an incredible microphone. Right. Because you're using this brand new mixing board. Nobody does that. They come back week after week after week because of what you have to say. That's what's important. They can see past lesser quality production issues because your content is so good. And, and, and I'll, I'll be completely honest. I mean, I joke about this. You know, I do these pod. Nobody listens to my podcast has to pay. It's all free. So un- yeah. until it becomes a paid venture, I'm not investing a whole lot of money in this. I shouldn't. Mm. You shouldn't invest a whole lot of money in it because let's, let's be honest. You're not going to make money podcasting people. It's not going to happen. You do it because you've got something you want to say, something you love. In my case, I started the Music Biz Weekly podcast for one primary reason. I wanted to build my presence on the Internet, meaning I wanted SEO. I wanted search results. Um, And I wasn't going to go buy advertising. I'm not buying banner ads. I'm not buying ads in magazines and trade shows and stuff like that. I'm going to do a podcast. I can do a podcast and now I'm a search result in Apple iTunes and Google and, you know, iHeartRadio and you, you name it. Now all of a sudden you've got all these search results coming up. The other thing is you do a podcast and you do it consistently, you kind of by default are an expert. Yeah. People see you as an expert in your subject matter. Um, you know, and we can debate whether that's justified and right or wrong, but it doesn't matter because perception is reality. So, you know, I did this as a way to advertise my marketing business. I'm doing this podcast. You're going to listen to my podcast. You're going to like what I hear. You might come back and reach out to me. But at least I've got all this content that I'm doing. Now, when I first started, I was podcasting and blogging. And I quickly got to the point where I just didn't have enough time to do everything. And I kept podcasting because, in my mind, podcasting was easier to do than writing. Hmm. Um, And my podcasts have always been unscripted, unprepared, other than we know what the topic is going to be or we know who the guest is going to be. We don't go in and preset questions and plan out what we're going to talk. We just let the conversation take the podcast where it will go. And that's very natural. That's not a produced slick radio show. And I think people like that. I think they like the more personal feel of it. So don't feel like as a podcast, you've got to compete with, I don't know, Howard Stern or some, you know, morning radio show, which has, you know, a staff of people and a huge budget behind it and every, all this great equipment. You're, first of all, you're not going to compete. Let's let's be real. I mean, a radio show has more people listening in a 15 minute time period than your podcast may ever have listened in the course of its life. You know, it's, it's just the way, it's just the reality of it. So don't get caught up in how many listeners you've got. It's good to know that, 
but don't sit here and go, oh, there's only 100 people who listen to me. It's a failure. <laughs> no, it's not. 100 people. 100 people listen to you. And all of a sudden, 500 people and then 1,000 people. And, and what I like to do is imagine what that looks like in a venue. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're all of a sudden doing a weekly show in a 1,000-seat theater, and it's sold out. That's pretty cool, actually. I mean, very few people are going to be the Adam Carollas and the Joe Rogans of the world where you've got millions every week. Yes. Um, you know, if you make your own little niche and you stick with it and you're consistent with it, it's, I love it. It's an amazing way to express yourself and talk about what you love. And that's the key to podcasting is, is in my mind, is find the niche that works for you. You know, you don't need this broad topic that's going to appeal to the entire world. I mean, you know, I'm talking, I got a music business marketing podcast. It's a pretty freaking small niche. Let's be honest. Yeah. You know, um, but I love it. It's fun. It's a great time to do. I love getting on with Jay Gilbert, you know, every week and we just catch up and we chat. And I've got another podcast just about the band Kiss as a fan. You mm. know, it's, it's a fun thing to do. One of the recent episodes from the Music Biz Weekly that stood out to me is episode 437, where you talked about prioritization and productivity. would love for you to share how you prioritize in your work and how you feel musicians should prioritize. You know, this goes way back to some early job out of college that I remember seeing some list. But basically, you know, you prioritize, in my mind, you prioritize based on the number one priority is is it a revenue generator? Mm-hmm. This got the potential to make you money. If the answer is yes, it's a priority. If it's never going to make you money, has no revenue associated to it, you're doing it just because it's fun to do. I'm not saying you don't do it, but that has to fall down as a lower priority because as a musician, like it or not, you're a business. You are a business. You're a startup. You're an entrepreneur. You know, I hate to scare musicians with all those those business-sounding words, but you're not just a musician. You are creating a business that has to survive. And how do you do that? How do you make sure your band is here a year from now? Making sure you make smart business decisions based on prioritizing what's going to further your career and what's going to put money in your pocket to allow you to survive one more month and one more month and one more month. And then all of a sudden you're making enough money that it's giving you breathing room that you're going to survive for six months now. That's what you've got to do because, you know, you're, you're like a brand new restaurant opening up. You're going to have mm-hmm. to spend your own money for a while and you're going to lose money for a while. It's just the reality. If you can't, if you don't want to risk losing money, you shouldn't be doing this. It comes down to. Absolutely. And, you know, this podcast, the new music industry podcast lives on Music Entrepreneur HQ. So, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more, right? It's kind of what I've been sharing with people for a long time now, that if you can see yourself as the meeting place or the connection between a musician and entrepreneur, the sooner you can embrace that, the sooner you can reach your career goals in a meaningful way. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I always remember from when I first started in the music industry was it's called the music business Yeah, and business (laughs) has more letters than the word music. So that's right. Music is the business part is more important. If you want to just be that weekend warrior, that's 100% fine. You've got no aspirations to make this your livelihood and your career. You just want to record some music and have fun with some buddies. That's perfect. But if you want to make this your career, it's a business. Every single, it's the difference between amateur and professional. And, you know, this is more apparent when it comes to sports. But, you know, an amateur athlete doesn't get paid to be an athlete. A professional athlete gets paid to be an athlete. So Hmm. a musician, if you're a professional musician, 
you're being paid to do what you love. If you're an amateur, you're not being paid. You're not worrying about being paid. So you, you've got to always, you've got to always understand you're going to have to survive as a business or you're not going to have money next year to record another album. You're not going to have money to record, to make a new video. You're not going to have money to buy a new guitar. Not going to have money to get that van to go out on a three-week tour. That money has to come from somewhere. And very few bands have, you know, rich investors behind them. You've got to earn that money yourself. Marketing is obviously one of your strengths. With pandemic lockdowns and the like, it seems like models are kind of shifting again and musicians who are still serious about making a go of it having to rethink how they approach their careers. So what do musicians need to be able to do to be able to do well in today's music business? Um, you know, I, I hate to throw out a, a business term here, but as a musician, you got to be able to pivot really quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, pivoting means change directions instantly. And, you know, in, in traditional business and startup, that means you started your business as this and that didn't work out. So you pivot to become this. You know, I guess in one sense, you could sit here and say Google started out to be a directory of websites, but quickly pivoted to become a company selling advertising. Yeah, they, they realized that's where their business was. Um, so with the pandemic, you were, you were basically forced to pivot overnight, you know, back in March when all of a sudden everything shut down overnight, everything changed. You needed to be ready and have the right mindset to go, all right, how do I, how do I keep myself alive for the next three months? Cause we don't know what's going on. Oh, now all of a sudden it's six months. Now it might be, I got to keep myself alive until 2022 because there might not be anything happening next year Mm -hmm. that's about you sitting here going where are the opportunities how do i go from playing in-person shows to live streaming shows you know how do you how do you reset your band's career path because everything's got to be online now oh you don't have a website might want to make that a priority right now because everything's on the internet you're not selling your t-shirts online you might want to make that a priority because nobody's buying CDs and T-shirts at shows right now. They can only do it online. So it's, it's being flexible enough to change when you might not want to. You know, you're, we were all comfortable last February when everything seemed fine. Nobody wanted to change in March. It was forced on you. If you don't change with the times, the times are going to leave you behind. And I think the, the, the reality is we will not go back to the normal we saw at the beginning of the year. Normal no. is going to be completely different, everybody. It's as, as much as 9-11 changed the way we fly, COVID is going to change life, everything about life. And this isn't just musicians, but it was restaurants and retailers. And if you didn't have an online component to your business and you couldn't do business online, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what a musician needs to look at right now. Okay, how do, I, how do I keep my band live just on the Internet for the next 18 months? What mm-hmm. do, you know, that, that, that would be my question. What's your plan? If nothing changes now until 2022, what's your plan to survive as a band and a musician for the next 18 months? How are you going to do it? Are you going to are you going to record more music and keep selling music online because, you know, that's what a lot of people are now doing. They're taking this time. Let's make some more music. Are you going to do live streaming shows? Are you going to understand how to stream? Are you going to understand how to do remote video recordings and then edit this video, remote videos into one edited video that you then stream that. There's a whole new opportunity here to learn stuff. And I think the musicians that sit back and say, I just play guitar. That's it. I just write. <laughs> That's it. I hate to tell you this, but 
you're going to get left in the dust. Well said, well said, you know, and I did an episode on pivots in episode 201, talking about some of the own pivots I've had to make in in what I'm doing right now. So that might be one for, for people to check out as well. One of the major themes of my work is creating the life you love through music. So where do you feel you land on that scale? You've obviously been in the music industry in a variety of capacities. Do you feel you've been able to create the life you love through music? Um. I would say yes. I mean, starting with the simple fact that I grew up a young kid as a KISS fan. I remember in 1976 seeing KISS on Paul Lind Halloween special and falling in love with the band and dreaming like every fan does of every band you love, dreaming of how cool would it be to work with that band? How cool would that be? And, you know, fast forward, 1998, it happened. I didn't set out to make that happen. I just followed a passion is what it was. And I just kept following my passion and my love. And all of a sudden it started all coming together. And then I became, I, I, I joke with people, I became a professional fan. Yeah. I was paid to be a fan of KISS. I was paid to go to shows, fly around the country, fly around the world. I, I went to Australia when they toured in Australia with them. I was paid to go to shows, to watch a KISS concert, to take photos, to videotape them. You know, you know I, had, I, was, I was invited to Paul Stanley's his 50th birthday party, something like 50 or 60th birthday party years ago. Hmm. You know, unbelievable as a fan to sit here and go, I'm going to his private birthday party. You know, I've been to Paul's house. I've been to Gene's house. You know, I'm, and it's not just Kiss, but it's other musicians that you grew up idolizing, that you've met, that you've talked to. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think I'm very happy with what I've, I've achieved. And it kind of leads to what I tell a lot of my clients as well, because they're always saying, well, what do you think of my album? What do you think is the good song? Is this song good enough? I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I say. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, it, it, it's, whether I like it or not doesn't matter. You, first of all, have to do the best you can when you record. That's it. I expect you to record as best as you can. But you got to love it. You as the musician have to love your music, your video, your website, the graphic, the ad, um, the CD cover. You've got to love it. It doesn't matter whether I love it or not because it's your name and it will be tied to you forever. It's not going to be tied to me. You know, maybe my name is listed in a credit of marketing by Michael Branvold. It's your name on that cover and it's your photo. And if you are so uncomfortable looking at it that it makes you cringe, <laughs> that's not what you want because it's going to be out there for the rest of your life. So you, as a musician, have to love what you're doing, regardless of all of the other voices chirping away in your ears saying, this is great, this is bad, this is, take it all in, but are you happy? Yeah. You know, in a big way, that's what I noticed as well. And I talked about it a little bit in my course, but sometimes musicians will be like fresh out of the studio only a week later and they're already like, no, I'm so done with that. I'm tired with it. It's like, well, why did you record it then? <laughs> like you have to be the most enthusiastic person. You have to be the one that wakes up early, stays late, shakes hands. Can't do that right now. But <laughs> you got to be the one that's, you know, the first to buy your album, first to listen to your album. You should have that kind of first row, first seat mentality to this. Yeah, you know, I, I, I tell musicians all the time, don't forget what it's like to be a fan. First yes. I mean, you, you can never be a fan of your own self, your own music. I mean, you just can't. That's, that's, it's physically, you can love what you do, but you can't be a fan from the standpoint of you're on one side of the velvet rope. The fans are always on the other side. You always know what's going on in your career. You're in the studio. You're doing the. You're on the bus. You're in the dressing room. The fans only dream of that stuff. So you can't be a fan of yourself. But you're a fan of somebody else. You know? Are you a fan of Paul McCartney? 
imagine what you you feel when you see Paul McCartney. Do you get like goosebumps and go, oh my God, it would be so cool if I could just meet Paul for 10 minutes and ask him this question about his bass playing or this particular song. Don't forget that because you have got fans who look to you the same way. Well, I have a few remaining questions to flesh out your character and to tease out additional insights our listeners are bound to find useful. What is the last YouTube video you watched? Oh, boy, that's a tough question because part of my job <laughs> is clicking videos every day, whether it's a client or whatever. Great. Um, what was the last YouTube video I watched? Um... For the life of me, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what it was. Um, well, that's all right. Um, usually I mean, we I, do I, get... I, I watch so... I mean, you know, again, my job is all about watching videos all day long. Whether I love it or not, I'm checking out this video or checking out that news story or, you know, I, I, we all live in YouTube. Yes. No, absolutely. That's true. Um, what is your daily routine like? Um, you know, I'm I'm a I've got a seven year old, so my mm. hours have, since she was a baby, have adjusted to. I'm up very early, and I'm going to bed early. So you know, I could be up at five a.m. And mm. the first thing I like to do is get a. A, a grasp on what my day is going to look like, which means let's review emails. I'm not answering emails, but I'm going through the inbox going, okay, what's waiting? Um, what's my to-do list look like today? And I live day in and day out on to-do lists. What's mm-hmm. on my schedule of items I got to do today? What does my calendar look like? Do I have appointments today? Um, you know, it's kind of putting my frame of mind, working on my frame of mind of, is this going to be an incredibly slamming busy day where I've got no time for anything, or am I going to have some breathing room to get stuff, other stuff done? And I like to start the day, because I don't like surprises to some extent like that. I don't like to just go, oh, holy crap, I forgot, I got a meeting in 10 minutes. No, I like to know, first thing in the morning, what's ahead of me. Um, Then it's kind of prioritizing things in that to-do list in the email inbox and going, okay, which emails can I, you know, push off and I'll reply tomorrow or I can reply a week from now. Which emails are urgent and need an answer right now? Which tasks in my to-do list have a deadline that it's got to be up today or it's too late? You know, we, 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 in the music industry, deadlines are often very firm and not flexible. And now yeah. it's coming out on this day, it's coming out, whether you're ready or not. You know, a tour announcement's happening, whether you're ready or not. Video's going live, whether you're ready or not. So, um, you know, it's it's understanding what's a priority. You know, oh, today, like I've got, I've got a, an artist that will have a pre-order that goes live tomorrow. So today it's like getting all the last things in line and, you know, my last thing at the end of the day today will be verifying on all the DSPs that the pre-order did go live. You know, it, you, you can't assume all of that stuff. It's going to just happen because it's supposed to. No. You, you need to, you know, fortunately because I'm in California, um, 9 p.m. my time on Thursdays is when Friday releases go live. So, you know, I'm, I, I get a three-hour extra window to everybody on the East Coast, it's going live at midnight. You got to stay up until midnight to verify. It's nine o'clock for me. Um, but you know, and then I like to end my day with cleaning up all of that, cleaning up the inbox, filing stuff, sorting stuff away, going through my my to do list, making sure I've closed off tasks that are done, rescheduling stuff that I couldn't get to, and then giving myself a quick glimpse of what the next few days are going to look like for tasks. Um, Because again, I don't like surprises. Especially (laughs) surprises that are my own fault because I just didn't pay attention. 
you know, there's yeah. always going to be surprises of, oh my God, your video just got picked up by so-and-so and you're getting a million streams. You got to do something really quick. You weren't ready for that. That's a good problem to have. But if it's in my control, I don't like to be surprised because I didn't bother reading an email from three days ago. Hmm. Absolutely. I like that. And it's actually a really good reason to be on top of things. What's the greatest challenge you've overcome on your journey? Um, greatest challenge I've overcome on this journey. It, it's probably learning to be extremely flexible. Hmm. Um, I will tell clients that are releasing music that we are going to put together a calendar. Here's the dates that we want the album out, pre-order to start, the first video to drop, the press release to go out. We're going to have all of that in a calendar. But I can guarantee you at some point along the way, it's going to get screwed up. And not because of anything we did, because of outside forces. Whether the distributor forgot to get it up there on time and ran into a problem. Um, whether, you know, the internet goes down and you can't send out that email blast now. There's always something that will come up. And you've got to learn to be flexible and just be ready for that type of stuff. You can't panic and go, oh my God, my whole release is destroyed because the pre-order didn't go live on the day we schedule it. You know, that sucks but we can manage it. We figure out what went wrong. Let's resolve it. Let's move forward. And then when we got an opportunity, we'll figure out how to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, you got to be flexible in this business. You're, you're, you're relying on the internet, which is out of your control. You're relying on third-party websites and apps, which are out of your control. Hmm. You're often relying on other people. You know, I, I always, I'm, I'm working with a client right now that's preparing to release uh, an album through a, a small label. I'm like, all you got to do right now is make sure your label understands the release dates we want and that they can confirm they've submitted everything because that's out of our control. We can't do that. The label's responsible for that. So once that's confirmed and taken care of, we don't have to worry about the label anymore. It's now back in our control to market and promote and do everything else. And that's fine. We can rely on ourselves. You have difficulties when it comes to relying on other businesses that you're just one of many things they're working on. And what's the greatest victory you've experienced? You know, I mean, I I would probably say one of the things, some of the things that I'm actually the most proud of is when KISS presented me with some RIA awards, Mm. you know, personally presented to me my name on it because I helped market an album. I helped promote an album. I helped, you know, that's, that, that makes you feel good. You know, it's, it's, it's the recognition, even like, even today I had a client who got a great review in a magazine and they share, they personally shared it and they, listed out a nice thank you list of all the people from the band and producer and their manager. And they included me in there, you know, it's like, and thank you for the marketing. And it's just like, that's, that's actually a big victory, you know, because Hmm. I, I tell, I tell bands this all the time. The number one thing your fans want more than anything from you is to be recognized for being your fan. They, you know, they, more than wanting free tickets and meeting you, they want you to recognize them, whether it's just replying to a tweet, whether it's clicking like, because they, they, they'll get reports that, hey, so-and-so liked your post. And, you know, and I've seen fans, especially on Twitter, who will post a tweet that says, oh my God, this artist just followed me. This yep. is the happiest day of my life. And you know what? That's great because you've now got a solid connection with that fan. And for me, it's the same thing. Artists, you've got teams of people working with you. 
recognition goes a long way to just, you know, when, when an artist thinks enough to include you in their list of thank yous in a tour book or on their upcoming album, you know, it's cool. It, it, it means a lot to you to see that sort of stuff. And as a music fan growing up as a kid, always reading the liner notes and always reading the production credits, you know, to get your name in there, it's sort of like getting your name up in lights. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I always feel the same way when I see comments come through or messages, then it's not even every day I would say, but when I do see those, it's very encouraging. So yeah, I can, it, I can it, testify. It makes you feel good. Now, obviously we're not doing this just for the pat on the backs, No, but that, that's the sort of stuff that will stay with you forever. When somebody says, oh, I saw you work with so-and-so years ago. Oh, yeah, they were so cool. You know, they, they appreciated what I did. They said thank you. As opposed to, and we've all had clients where you're like, oh, God, you know what? Be careful <laughs> with them. You know, it's just going to be a nightmare. You know, nothing's going to yeah. get approved. They're going to question everything. They're going to they're gonna hate what you do. You know, that's that's part of what you're doing as an artist when you're giving that recognition is you're helping yourself in the long run as well. Wow, that's huge. Are there any books that have helped you on your journey? Books. Who's got time to read? <laughs> I don't even have time to listen to podcasts and I record two of them every week. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say books, so to speak, but I'm ravenous about reading stuff online, mm -hmm. whether it's going to Hypebot or whether it's somebody else's blog or whether, you know, it's just a Facebook post. You got to be, you got to be absorbing stuff all the time and outside of the music industry. Don't just get so stuck in, yes. I only want to read books about the music industry. Go read books about how a video game is marketed and promoted. Because you might learn something or get a cool idea from that video game that you can pick up and redo and repurpose for your next release. You know, the real world is, is a big influence. You've got to keep your eyes open to books and movies and TV shows and everything. You've got to get outside when you can. You got to get off the computer yeah. um, and, and look at what else is happening in the world because it can inspire you and give you some amazing new ideas. And, you know, never be afraid to, quote, steal an idea. I mean, in my opinion, nothing is original these days. So, um, you know, if you can take inspiration from somewhere else and craft, craft it into your own doing, go for it. Yeah, I even have a book called The Essential Guide to Creative Entrepreneurship. Obviously, it's applicable to any artist, but it's also to help musicians think parallel industries. What else is out there? What are other, what are other creatives doing? And is there any chance for me to model that? Exactly. So, yep, yep. Yeah, so important, yeah. so important. I mean, especially when, when you're being influenced by somebody who is successful. And it, mm -hmm. it might not be a musician. It just might be a successful author. It might be a successful comic book. Um, you know, if they're succeeding doing it, 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 it's working. Yeah, exactly. Great point. So, well, thank you for your time and generosity, Michael. Really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything else I should have asked? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think we covered quite a bit here, actually. We did. And your website's michaelbranvold.com. Right. Yes. Everything's uh, on michaelbranvold.com. You can find links to... Facebook, pages, groups, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Um, I'm kind of everywhere, you know, iTunes, Spreaker. Um, you know, you can find podcasts. You can find, uh, you know, you can get the ebook um, from Noise Trade. Um, you know, it's a free download. Go, go, go get it. See if there's uh, something you might learn from KISS. Perfect. Well, thanks again for being on the show. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. 
Are you ready to begin creating the life you love through music? Check out our new ebook library at musicentrepreneurhq.com join to grab your free guide and get the latest updates regarding new blog posts, podcast episodes, and videos. I look forward to connecting with you. This has been episode 215 of the New Music Industry Podcast. I'm David Andrew and I look forward to seeing you on the stages of the world. Thank you for listening. Music in this episode was brought to you by Brian Young. Wherever you're listening to this right now, please consider leaving a five-star review and comment to help us get the word out about the podcast. <laughs>